Good to see all of you again. Um, it's really a pleasure to be here, uh, just to be with all of you again. And, you know, specifically, I think just being able to support uh, Pastor Cologne and, and during his sabbatical and of time of rest uh, as a former pastor or current pastor, it, you know, just these times of rest, uh, I recognize the importance of it. So all of what we are doing to sustain the church and to keep everything going uh, is, is really just so important uh, for the ministry, longevity of the, the ministry of this church. Um, so for those of you who haven't met me yet, uh, we've been going through the book of Ruth over these past couple weeks. And so today is our third week of four weeks. So you have this week and next week. But what I want to do is I want to just go through and look and just re remind ourselves of where we've been in the book of Ruth. And so for some of us who were here and maybe not paying attention as closely, this will be by, you know, a, a way for us to be able to review where we're going. In Ruth chapter one, we had a family and it was a Jewish family and it was a, a husband and a wife with two sons. And the main person you need to know is the mother's name was Naomi. And she had a husband and two sons. And in Jewish culture at that time, if you had men in your family, if you had a husband or if you had sons, you were protected and you were provided for. That's how the society took care of you. And so Naomi had a husband and two sons, but there was a famine. And so they, they moved their family to Moab. And in Moab, there was, that Moab was basically the sworn enemy of the Jews. And what ended up happening is after they moved to Moab, the husband died, Naomi's husband died, and her two sons died. And so she lost all of the provision and protection in Jewish culture. But she did actually, before their two sons died, they took two Moabite wives. And so now Naomi is left in Moab in the enemy country with two Moabite daughters-in-law. Now she's making a move back to, to Judah, back to her homeland because the famine is over. And so she ends up going along the way. And as she's getting closer to Judah, she turns and looks at the fact that she left with three Israelite men and is returning with two Mo Moabite women. And so she kind of looks at them and she's like, hey, why don't you guys go back? Right? Because I think it's, this is what I think. I think it's better for her to come back alone than it is to come back with two Moabite daughters-in-law. Because then everybody knows, oh, when you were in Moab, first of all, we know that you went to Moab. Second, we know that when you went to Moab, you like assimilated with their culture. So she looks at her daughters-in-law and go, oh, this is not going to go well for me. So she sends them back. And one daughter-in-law, Orpah, goes back to Moab. But the other one, Ruth, stays with Naomi. This is the famous passage where she says, you, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Ruth says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stay with you. Probably because she recognizes the vulnerability that Naomi had in that society. No one to protect her. No one to provide for her. And so Ruth is like, I'm not going to just leave you alone. And the end of chapter one says they arrived back in Judah during the time of the barley harvest. And I can guarantee you that's a verse that you never thought of before. Right? Who cares what season it is? But... You have to understand God's provision for them, even in the timing of them returning. Because Ruth and Naomi, they have no food. They have no job. They have no income anymore. And so when they return, they need to figure out how they are going to live, how they are going to feed themselves. And it just so happens they return on the beginning of the barley harvest. So the next day, Ruth gets up 
And she says, you know what? I'm going to go out in the field and I'm going to glean from the, the leftovers in the field, right? We looked at this last week where the reapers were gathering all these bundles of stock uh, of grain and some grain would fall on the ground and Ruth would follow along the reapers and just pick up the scraps. And eventually, Ruth ends up being invited to, she ends up happening into the, the, the field of Boaz, who happens to be a relative of Naomi. And then Boaz invites her to the table and gives her the roasted grain and gives her the wine and gives her a, a, a full ephah of barley, which is like a 40-pound rice bag of, of grain, back to her home. So there's this overwhelming provision and protection. Boaz says, stay by my people. Stay by my workers. Don't go into another field. Don't be assaulted in another field. Stay here in my field and we'll protect you. So they make the choice to come back and it just so happens to be in the barley harvest, in the beginning of the barley harvest, and she so, just so happens to end up in Boaz's field and Boaz just so happens to lay notice of Ruth and then provides protection for her. And then at the end of chapter two, says that Ruth stayed close to Boaz's women until the end of the barley harvest. And I can guarantee you, you've never paid attention to that verse before because who pays attention to verses about harvests? But we do today because we recognize that the end of the barley harvest, the harvest uh, season of the barley harvest is about seven weeks. And so when chapter one ends, it's the beginning Day one, Ruth wakes up and ends up in Boaz's field. And so she ends up being provided for and protected during this season. They're just giving the leftover grain to her. And she's going home well-fed and well-provided for. And then the barley harvest ends at the end of chapter two. And so you have to understand something. What now? The barley harvest is not all season. I mean, now we go to the supermarket and if you want strawberries, you go get strawberries. But back in the day, if it wasn't strawberry season, you couldn't get strawberries, right? And so if the barley harvest season is over and you got all the grain you're going to get, what now? What do we do now? Yes, God has been faithful to us. Yes, God has provided for us. But have you ever been in a season where God's provision for you is there, but then the source of that provision dries up? And then you look at tomorrow and you go, well, what now? Well, that's where Ruth and Naomi ended up at the end of chapter two. Just like in the beginning of chapter one, where they, there was a famine in Judah and they say, where are we going to get our provision now? And they moved to Moab. And then just like they return back to Judah at the end of chapter one, and they say, what now? How are we going to eat? And it happens to be the beginning of the barley harvest. And then at the end of chapter two, where the barley harvest season ends, and then they say, okay, now what? Well, this is where we pick up Ruth chapter three, and we look at this. Um, awesome. So today, right, we've looked at the return, we've looked at the table, and today we look at the threshing floor. And I can almost guarantee you, you probably never thought about threshing floor before either, but we're going to look at it today. We're going to learn some things today. So we pick up the story of Ruth and Naomi in chapter three. Now, when I say story, I don't want you to be misled. I don't want you to think that this is somehow made up. These are real people. These are real people that real things happen to. So when I say story, I'm just saying, I'm just telling you the story of their life, not saying that I'm telling you a made up story about some people a long time ago, right? That didn't exist. 
So this is the story that continues in Ruth chapter 3. So just you're going to just have to listen, not read. So this is the beginning of chapter 3. Again, this is the barley harvest season has ended. They're now looking around going, now what? So it says in verse 1, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is it not Boaz, our relative, there we are, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So, chapter 2 ends. We don't know where the rest of the harvest season is over. So now I don't know where we're going to get the rest of our food and everything, all of our provision and protection from here on out because season is over. There's no more going out to Boaz's field because now they're going to reap, right? This is the end of the harvest. So Naomi looks at Ruth and says, Shouldn't I pursue rest for you? Shouldn't we give ourselves sustainable protection and provision? So what she says is, Boaz is now going up to the threshing floor to winnow barley. Again, nothing means nothing to us, right? But this is what it means. This is the end of the harvest where all those reapers who are gathering those stalks of grain, right? They get these bundles of grain and they put them all in a big old pile, okay? And this is how you would winnow barley. Let's go next. I'll just say next. So they would, this is, this is typically now like how uh, modern society without machines, right? They would put all the stalks of grain that you've reaped into the thing. They put them all in a big pile. And then they would take these oxen and they would put a post in the middle. And the oxen would tread the grain. See these phrases that you've heard before, but you never knew what they were. They would tread the grain, which means the, the weight of these oxen would push down the, the stalks and the grain. So it would separate the grain from the, 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 the rest of the stalks. Okay, next. And so what they would do is they would take those pitchforks, right? You guys seen those pitchforks. And now, forgive me, if anybody of you grew up on a farm, please forgive me for explaining to you what you already know. But just for the rest of us, they would take a winnowing fork and they would just pick it up and then they just throw it up in the air. If you've ever seen someone do this, it seems a little bit weird that they would, just, like usually as a shovel, like you pick something up and you move it, right? That's not what they're doing. They literally pick it up and throw it up in the air. And you stand aside and you'd be like, what are they doing like? But what they're trying to do is they're throwing up the grain and the stalk and let, letting the wind carry away. Let's go next. Carry away the, the, the chaff, which is like the casing of the grain. The grain does not get carried away by the, the wind. The grain falls to the ground and the wind takes away the light chaff that encase the grain. So what they're doing is they're throwing up grain. The wind is taking the casings and blowing them over here. And then what you're left with is just a pile of grain. And that's how you separate the wheat from the chaff. 
which is a phrase we may have heard before as well. So this is what they're doing. They're throwing it up because they want the grain to fall and the chaff to be blown away. So you would typically see a threshing floor at a time where it is very, um, uh, where it's very windy. So you'd want it high up so that the wind would carry away the chaff. You're going to see some examples. Let's go next. One more. Yeah, let's get that Matthew passage. There you go. So this is a, a scripture in, in the New Testament where God is talking about the judgment. And it says this, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, that's just, we've heard that passage before. We know that it's about the judgment of God. But until today, we didn't actually understand what the winnowing fork was and what the threshing floor was and what the wheat was and what the chaff was. But now you see the example of how God separating the wheat from the chaff goes back to what they would understand because of the barley harvest. Okay, so let's go next. So this is the situation. Boaz is going up to the threshing floor. And so he's recognizing that he is, uh, Ruth recognizes that he's going to go up to um, the, uh, the threshing floor. So Naomi tells Ruth, why don't you wash yourself? Why don't you put on your best clothes? Why don't you smell nice and look nice and go up to the threshing floor? Uh, and this is the interesting thing is that Think about the, 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 the harvest, right? So you're, you plant crop, and then at the, the beginning of the harvest, it's all this labor to gather it all and this and that. And then you get all of the grain at the end of the time in a giant pile. And this pile is going to feed your whole community for that season. So this is like, you know, when you get, like, imagine at your job, they paid you once a year. And then they said like, okay, this is going to now feed you, right? Like I imagine that night you might go out for a nice dinner, right? Cause you're never going to have more money that year than you are that night. And they're never going to have as much food as they're going to have that night. And so you can imagine that if, 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 if a bunch of us went up to the threshing floor, we're threshing wheat and this and that, and we're seeing all of the food that we're going to sustain us all throughout the year, and we're just celebrating the goodness of God and his provision for us, you can imagine that the threshing floor would be a period of time where we would really celebrate, right? So there would be, it'd be a huge celebration. And so this is actually from uh, Deuteronomy. Let's go next. Deuteronomy 16, 13, again, this is not the same festival of the har barley harvest, but this gives you a picture of what sort of celebration it was. It says, you shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days when you've gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press, you shall rejoice in your feast. So this is basically just saying, this is a time to celebrate. We are going to celebrate God's goodness to us. Now, what the, the, the passage in Ruth that we're seeing, you can go next. The passage in Ruth is talking about this uh, festival of weeks, of weeks. So it's called the Harvest Festival, and in Jew, in, in um, to the Jews, it was called Shavuot, Shavuot, which is a minor Jewish holiday. But what's really fascinating is that every Shavuot that the Jews celebrate, they go to the temple, and you know what they do? They read the Book of Ruth because 
this is the example of that harvest festival in the Bible. And so in their Jewish scriptures, they read the book of Ruth, which I find fascinating. So again, they're gathering together all the men in the community. They're, they're winnowing the grain, separating the wheat from the chaff, and there would be a lot of eating and drinking, which is why Ruth, uh, Naomi says, um, wash yourself, anoint yourself, but don't make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Now, those of you who have celebrated before know that like you eat the best food and you probably drink the best wine, right? Like they're, they're drinking. When they're saying drinking, it's not like just, you know, water bottles, right? They're probably celebrating and they're drinking. And so when Naomi tells Ruth to not to wait to reveal yourself until they're done eating and drinking, he's, she's basically saying, I want you to go and wait until he's full on food and full on drink. He's probably drunk. I'm just, calling, I'm just calling it out. So now she says, I want you to go under the cover of darkness and the cover of drunkenness and then reveal yourself. Now, Hosea verse nine, uh, chapter nine, verse one says this, for you have been unfaithful to your God. You, you love the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. Now that is a, an example from Hosea that talks about a threshing floor. And you don't have to worry about what Hosea meant by that, who, who he was talking to, but it just means that at threshing floors, there were prostitutes. Now, okay, I know I'm, uh, we're, there's a lot of things that we're talking about today in church that we, have, we don't usually talk about. But imagine if I'm a prostitute and I sell myself for sex in order to sustain my life, where am I gonna go to go and find men that are ready to sleep with me. Well, if there's a threshing floor and people are already in good moods because of the celebration of the harvest and they're drunk and everybody's in a good mood, that's where I'm gonna go, okay? So you can, get, you can go to the next one. So basically what we're saying is a threshing floor, I just have the picture. I'm just trying to paint a picture here. The threshing floor is a time of, it's a big old party. And everybody's having a good time. And if a woman came onto the threshing floor, what would you think she was? You would think she was a prostitute. You would think that she's there to have sex with the men who are winnowing the grain. So, Naomi doesn't want Ruth to be seen until the party's sort of wrapping up. She doesn't want to be see Ruth like walking around and because then it looks like Ruth is a prostitute. It looks like Ruth is prostituting herself to all of these men. So Naomi says, no, I don't want you. I want you to wait. Because Naomi has in her mind a plan where Ruth is going to find Boaz. Now, this reminds me of a story in Genesis 38. And it talks about this woman named Tamar. So let's go ahead to this next slide. So I'm going to read this passage for you and give you a little bit of context. We're going in deep here, people. We got to just follow with me. So it says, after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that 
Though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me go with you. A lot of things going on. Tamar, her husband died. And in the Jewish culture, when your husband died, you were left without provision and protection. So what the family was supposed to do was to take the next male heir and that person was supposed to sleep with the widow to provide an heir. So until Tamar got a son, that was that she was basically left unprotected. And so the, the, in the culture at the time, again, at the time, not today, but at the time, the culture was the next of kin would take care of Tamar until she was given a male heir. But Judah, who's the father-in-law, did not do that. Didn't provide for Tamar after her husband died. And so she's stuck in these widow's clothes and she's left vulnerable, completely vulnerable. And at the whim of this person named Judah. So she hears Judah's going up to shear sheep. Now, shearing sheep is just like the barley harvest. You grow the sheep's hair, and at the end of the season, you shear the sheep, and you get all the wool, and this is like the same sort of thing. This is a harvest of wool, and there's going to be a big party, and there's going to be a big celebration, and there's going to be a big old pile of wool, and there's probably going to be a lot of food, and a lot of drinks, and a lot of prostitutes. And Tamar hears that Judah's going up, to shear his sheep. So she says, she hatches a plan. And she goes, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to dress up like a prostitute, veil my face, and meet him along the way. And that's exactly what happens. Now, what ends up happening in this story is that Tamar sleeps with Judah. Judah ends up impregnating Tamar with a son. But and he doesn't know that this is his daughter-in-law. But then in order to exchange for payment, he gives her a promise and he says, here, take my belongings. And, Judah, and then Tamar says, okay, I'll take your belongings until you pay me for sure. And then they never meet up again. And so Judah's like, okay, this prostitute has my belongings, but I didn't pay her. So, okay, I guess that was just like, a, you know, a deal gone bad. This is actually in Genesis 38. Okay. So file that away in your brain because when Naomi asks Ruth, to go to the threshing floor to seduce Boaz, I bet she has Genesis 38 in her mind. I think she's like, we're going to Tamar you. <laughs> we're going to get you pregnant by Boaz and we're going to get you an heir because that's what Tamar did to Judah in Genesis 38. Okay, we go, we go, uh, go to the next one right there. So it says this, when... when you lie, when he lies down, observe where he is, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. Now, foot there, feet, can mean foot. Foot in that verse can also mean further up the leg. Okay? Yeah, it'd be, it'd be air quotes, okay, if we were writing that today. Uncover his foot, right, and lie down next to him. Now, so basically, Ruth was being told by Naomi to go and 
to uncover Boaz and lay down next to him and then says, he will tell you what to do. Because he's in a good mood and he's drunk and he's old and you're young. You're like, this is the Bible? Okay. So understand this. Naomi was trying to take matters into her own hands. She was trying to tame our Boaz, right? And then looking at Exodus 22, uh, it says this. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give her the bride price for her and make her his wife. Now, Naomi was probably thinking, if he sleeps with you, even if you don't get pregnant, if he sleeps with you, he may abide by Exodus 22 and just marry you anyway. Either way, we win. Because now that the harvest is over, now that we don't know where we're going to get provided for, I'm going to hatch a plan because I'm going to figure this out. So you seduce him, he sleeps with you, you get pregnant, you get a son, we win. He doesn't, you, you, you reveal yourself to him, and then he marries you because of Exodus 22. Either way, we win. So this is what's going on in Ruth chapter 3. Now, I will say, it, you know, in the, in the bio that, that Chris has read for me um, every week, I work for an organization called International Justice Mission, and we work on the front lines of trafficking around the world. Now, one of the things that we see is family members trafficking other family members, mothers trafficking daughters, fathers trafficking children because of poverty. And I don't know if it's just me, but when I look at Ruth chapter three, I see someone on the brink of poverty looking around and saying, where can I get security in my income? And she looks at her Moabite daughter-in-law and says, I know what I'm going to do. So it may just, just be my lens that I put on, but I see trafficking in chapter three. Because Naomi is saying, I have a commodity in Ruth and I'm going to sell that commodity in order to provide security for me. Okay, so Naomi is still seeking financial security and she compromises the way things should go. So let's see what happens. Uh, let's click through. Yep. So Ruth goes down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, see, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly, uncovered his feet and laid down at midnight. The man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Spread your wings is basically uh, cover me, right? Which is language really talking about consummating the sexual relationship. So cover me, spread your wings over me, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, by Yahweh, my daughter. That might be the first signal that something's not going to happen that day because he called her my daughter. So just... Just so you know, you have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. 
And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. If he is not willing to redeem you, then as Yahweh lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. See, now we begin to see the power of what's going on in Ruth 3. Ruth is basically saying, I'm here for the taking. Sleep with me. Make this right. And Boaz, who is merry, heart was merry, full of food, and he was drunk. And he was groggy, wakes up in the middle of the night, was like, whoa, what is this? And she goes, I'm Ruth. And you know that he's already actually, what he says is, your last kindness, meaning the kindness that you would avail, open yourself to me, is a kindness that's greater than the first kindness, which was, what was the first kindness? How she took care of his family member, Naomi. So you took care of Naomi, and the fact that you're taking, you know, you're opening yourself up to me is a kindness. And he says, I'm going to relax. You don't need to do this. I'm going to take care of you, but we're going to do this the right way. So he says, I, it's true, I'm a redeemer. We're going to talk a, a, about that word. I am a redeemer, but there's a redeemer that's closer than me. And he said, she, he, so Boaz says, if he does it, then great. He will protect you, provide for you. If he doesn't do it, I'm going to do it. So what he's, what he's essentially saying is, you got to trust you got to trust me on this. I'm going to make good on this, but we got to do it the right way. So that's the situation that's going on in, uh, the, in this passage. Now, this is the language um, of, uh, of recognizing how uh, Ruth and Boaz are interacting on that night. So he says, I'm going to take care of you. And let's go to De De Deuteronomy 25. I think it's like three clicks. Go back one. One more. There we go. So this comes from Deuteronomy 25, which is an iteration of how brothers would support each other, like we talked about in Tamar's story. So it says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. This is what we were talking about in that situation with Tamar. And this is what Boaz is talking about. He's saying someone, a relative, will take care of you and provide for you that heir. But there's somebody that's closer, so we're going to let him have the first opportunity the, you know, right of first refusal in, in a way. And if he doesn't do it, then I will do it for you. So this is what's going on in that community. Now, again, we're looking at this and going, man, this is like some weird, uh, weird family, like messed up, you know, sort of things. But understand that in that culture, there weren't ways for people, uh, widows, to find that provision and protection by themselves. They were too vulnerable in that society. And so this was the way that God brought protection and provision through the, the family. So he's saying, I will take care of you and you just need to wait. And then it says, lay here until morning. Okay, uh, let's go next. It says, let, uh, 
lie down until morning. And then the next one in verse 14 continues. It says this. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So Boaz tells Ruth, lay down here, and she lays down until morning. Now, why would she wait until the morning? But it says before she arose, she arose before anybody could recognize her. So basically, he gets her up before everybody else wakes up. And why is he doing that? Because he's trying to protect Ruth's reputation. Because if a woman is seen leaving the threshing floor in the morning, everybody's going to think that she's a prostitute. So he's saying, he, even in that, he's trying to protect her. So he's saying, lay here, wake up, leave before morning. And then he says, even though you're leaving, come here. I want to give you six measures of barley, right? I want to give you another bag of rice to take home to your mother-in-law because there's this heap of grain. So I want to bless you with this food, this overwhelming, overpouring of provision. Now she's carrying a garment, right? And so I, she's probably holding out her garment, her dress. And he's like dumping the barley into her dress. And so I imagine she's like walking home through the city while everyone's sleeping, just, and grain is just falling out on the sides because she's trying to step. And, and I think that's a picture of just the overflowing of provision that God wants to give to us, that we cannot even carry, we cannot even, not even hold onto all of the blessings and the provision that God has for us. That even though we go with one set of, uh, uh, in our mind of how we are going to get this provision and protection, God may have a completely different story written for us, and we may find ourselves going home and not even being able to hold onto all that God has waiting for us. So, the chapter 3 ends with, he will settle the matter today. And if you want to know how he settles the matter, you're going to have to come next week. <laughs> so, what can we learn, though, from Ruth chapter 3? Because I think that there are a few things that we can learn. First of all, we go back to Elimelech, right? Way back to Ruth chapter 1. Go ahead and click. Elimelech when he was looking for provision and protection, what did he do? He made his own decision and he did it his own way. He says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to move my family to Moab and we're going to find food that way. Which reminds us of the verse that we looked at three weeks ago, which says this in Judges chapter 21. It says this, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Elimelech says, I'm just going to figure this out on my own. And he moves to Moab. But then what ended up happening is next, Naomi in Ruth chapter 3, she looks at the situation and says, we don't know where we're going to get. The harvest season is over. We don't know what's going to happen. And she says, we're going to pursue this my way. Now, she may have the right mind that Ruth and Boaz, Boaz may be the one to provide that heir for Ruth. But she says, we're going to do it in the way that I see fit. 
So you may be understanding what God wants, but pushing your own way to do it. That's where Naomi, Naomi was. Naomi trafficked her own daughter-in-law because she was like, I want to find the quickest way to be able to do it. And so she found a way that did not fall into God's will, and God had a different way forward. So then we come to Boaz, where Boaz does it God's will, God's way. And it's important to understand that God's will done in any other way is not God's will. So God's will has to be done in God's way. And Boaz says, I'm going to do it. And in fact, I'm flattered that you would even offer it to me, but I'm going to do this right because there's a redeemer who is closer than me. And so we got to give that person the right to be able to refuse it. Even though I want to, even though I will, we have to do this the right way. Boaz didn't let his circumstances determine how he acts. This quote from Chuck Swindoll says this, faith does not change my circumstances, faith changes me. Have you ever been in a situation where you looked at the circumstances and you said, God, this does not look right. This does not look friendly. This does not look fair. And you pray about faith and then the faith comes and you look at the, you wake up the next day and you realize you're in the exact same circumstances, but everything is different because faith has changed me. If we're going to do God's will in God's way, that means faith must change us not just our circumstances. You see, so many times when we pray about our lives, when we pray about our situations, we are asking God to change our circumstances, change my work, change my boss, change my family, change my living conditions, change my church, change my friends, change, change everything outside of me, but we don't pray, God, would you change me? Faith does not change my circumstances, faith changes me. Now, can I admit something to you? I wrote this sermon many years ago. And in this point in the sermon, I had a quote from a pastor that I can't quote anymore because he's been canceled. I remember when I was, I texted my friends and I was like, hey, it's a good quote. It's a really good quote. But I was like, can I use this quote from this pastor anymore? And they were like, I wouldn't. And then I found this quote from Chuck Swindoll. And then you guess what I Googled immediately after? Has Chuck Swindoll been canceled? Because I can't keep track of it. And I thought, you know what's so ironic? We are talking about doing God's will in God's way. And I'm quoting a pastor that was running a very good ministry that got canceled. If there's ever an example of God's will my way, it's that pastor even though he said a great quote, but he did it in the wrong way. God's will my way is not God's will. We have to do it God's way. So when we look at Ruth, we recognize, when we put ourselves in Ruth's shoes throughout this chapter, throughout this book, Ruth is just trying to do the right thing. Ruth is just trying to be faithful. And all around her, she's being influenced by people who are making their own decisions. Elimelech moving to Moab. Naomi trafficking Ruth in chapter 3. And Boaz saying, we're going to do this the right way.
understand that if you have Bo if you want to be Boaz in your life, there are people that you can influence by doing things the right way. There are people in your church. There are people in your family. There are people in your workplace. There are people in your schools that you can influence and provide for and protect and provide a covering of God's provision through you doing faithfulness in God. So you faithfully following God can not just improve, change you, but can also drastically change the course of someone else's life. What we're seeing in Ruth up to this point with Elimelech and Naomi and all of these people making all of these wrong decisions, in chapter three, we're seeing Boaz step to the front and say, we're gonna do this the right way. And even though Boaz at the end of chapter three doesn't know what's gonna happen, we don't know, he doesn't know how the story's gonna end. Maybe that other person's gonna step up and be like, oh great, I'll take Ruth. We don't know how the story's gonna end, but he says, what I do know is that God is in control of all of this. So as long as I follow God and make the right decision in front of me, whatever is the end result of this, God is in control. And so you, as you look at your life, as you look at your situation, as you look at the decision in front of you, as you look at the, 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 the situation, the circumstances, the predicament that you're in right now, you may not know the ending. You may not know how everything ends up. But what you can do is you can look in front of you and say, I know that if I follow God for this next step, and then the step after that, and then the step after that, at the end of the whole journey, I will have followed God all throughout. So my encouragement, my challenge, my comfort to all of you is that you may not know what to do. You may not know where the story ends. You may not know where you're going to be end up in 5, 10, 15 years. But you can look at the step in front of you and say, I'm going to follow God with this step. Because I know that that's a step in the right direction.